From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today, on this brand new season of The Public Morality, political analyst Joe Tooman returns to discuss an eventful week in politics, from Supreme Court hearings to an anonymous op-ed in the New York Times. That's coming up on The Public Morality. Welcome to a brand new season of The Public Morality. Last week, to put it mildly, was quite a week, even for the whirling dervish known as the Trump administration. It began with the Senate confirmation hearings for Supreme Court nominee Judge Brett Kavanaugh. But 24 hours later, a new book by famed journalist Bob Woodward that paints an unflattering portrait of the Trump presidency placed the Kavanaugh hearings in the second place. And 24 hours after the news about Woodward's book, the New York Times, in an unprecedented move, published an op-ed under the pseudonym Anonymous, a piece that could only be described at best as a soft coup within the executive branch. Needless to say, this was a week that will not soon be forgotten in the annals of American history. To help us sort it out, it is my pleasure to once again have political analyst Joe Tooman on the public morality. Joe Tooman, welcome back to the public morality. Brian, always a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, you know, we, we've, we've always enjoyed our conversations, and this year we decided that you would be our first guest in our brand new season, so welcome. Oh, I'm honored. Thank you very much. And uh, before, before we get started, I'd be remiss if I didn't acknowledge that, uh, that with you taking the time to be with us. You are also a new grandfather since we last talked. So congratulations on behalf of the public morality. I am, and I'm proud to tell you, that although I'm 60 now, I became a grandfather before I was 60, so I feel like a young grandfather. <laughs> but I'm, I'm the, the very happy grandfather of a six-month-old little boy named August who is just wonderful, really great to have. I oh. encourage being grandparents to everybody, definitely. Okay, now... You, you see, because because we're always self-promoting, was that August's first promotion on the air? I just want to know. <laughs> I think I think it was. Okay, we'll take it. We'll take it. We'll take it. Yeah. <laughs> so let, let let's begin with uh, the unprecedented week that began with a uh, Supreme Court hearing for Brett Kavanaugh. But that quickly dropped into a secondary consideration with the teasers we learned from Bob Woodward's new book, Fear. And then a mere 24 hours, many of us were gobsmacked by the anonymous op-ed in the New York Times taking it in totality. Would it be fair to say that this is an unprecedented week, not only for the Trump administration, but for America at large? I, I think that, that things have been hyper strange or, or weird, uh, really, since the 2016 election. And in a way, you sort of get numb to that after a while. But, you know, even given that background and, and how we're all sort of used to this, these, these tur- this turbulent times that we live in, uh, this was still another order of magnitude weirder than before. And uh, I think all of us, when the, especially when the uh, anonymous op-ed piece was announced the day before, um, sort of stopped everything and said, "What you know?" And, and the weird thing is, I don't think this author told us anything we didn't know. Um, it was just the oddity of of them printing it, the New York Times taking this risk, and the fact that this person, uh, he or she, insisted on anonymity, maybe for understandable purposes, but in a way that in some ways, undermine the credibility of the message, which, which we'll talk about, I, I suppose. And so, yes, I agree. It was, it, was, um, it was the sort of week where everybody after that point was walking around with their mouths wide open, just, you know, astonished. And it continues to this day. You know, you, 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 we've, we've learned, um, we, we learned things about President Nixon after the fact. We, we've learned things about other presidents after the fact. Uh, we've had... Um, People in the cabinet resign in protest. But 
I don't think we've ever had something like this happen in real time. Yeah. No, it, 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 uh, usually we learn about these things after the fact. And, and you know, the, the, well, but, you know, this is also in some ways, Brian, I think a, a function of the way that media, news media in particular, has changed. Um, you know, uh, they say television uh, kills radio, or, or rather radio in some ways uh, hurt print, uh, broadcasting newspapers, that sort of thing. Television killed radio as well. Uh, then the Internet um, killed, I, I don't think completely killed, but it definitely smacked television pretty hard until they went to satellite and cable and had 24-hour coverage. And uh, so I, I think the, the astonishing thing about this um, is that uh, we got word of this, of course, the day before, but this person chose to release this on the oldest of these, which is really print newspaper um, media. And, but because of the Internet and like, uh, we all had read the story or heard about it, uh, you know, the day before it came out in the same way that uh, all the details of Bob Woodward's book are out, and that book hasn't even dropped yet. It's, I think it's coming this weekend. September 11th. That, and we all know all the details already, which I'm sure is going to hurt his sales <laughs> in some ways. Um, but this is the, these are the times we live in. And so to your point about this happening in real time, you know, when we learned – about the details of the only thing I can think which is comparable, Deep Throat, in, during Watergate. Um, that stuff trickled out uh, back to Mr. Woodward with Woodward and Bernstein's coverage at the Washington Post um, because, you know, you, you print a newspaper, it comes out the next day. You did this. You're a journalist. You know? yeah. Yeah. And uh, we had to wait for the paper to read the details and to learn the story. And we live in a 24-hour news coverage world now, and, and you get this stuff instantly. So uh, as ironic as it was that this person chose to release this to the oldest form of medium uh, in a way, which is print media, because that print media is also connected, like everything else, to the Internet, we saw this and we're still seeing this in real time. In fact, the story is in some ways organic. It's continuing it's a story, as we used to say in journalism, that has legs, will go on for a while. And most of us are doing what I think you were doing. Uh, not too long ago, you and I had a back and forth on, on Facebook, I know, and we're speculating about who this might be. And uh, we're doing this, and, you know, and the story is, what, uh, 48 hours old. Right. And the president has already had a series of, <laughs> I won't call them nervous breakdowns, but let's just say episodes of anger and said crazy things like today, uh, I don't know if you, you saw this latest wire service, but on Air Force One, he was setting, thinking of ordering the Justice Department to investigate this. And, of course, you know that the Justice Department can't investigate something if there's no evidence of a crime. And so far as we know, criticizing the president is not a crime. Yet. Right. Um, but uh, uh, this is the kind of crazy stuff that's happening, and it's, 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 uh, it's clearly affected all of us. Without question. So yeah, to your original point, it's it's a crazy week. It's been crazy. <laughs> if if one examines the op-ed based on their feelings about this president, I, I think the outcomes are, are fairly predictable. Just give just given the strident nature of, of our po- political discourse. But are there long-term implications that could impact the office of president because of this op-ed? Well, uh, let's let's pretend that we're not talking about Trump for a moment, because the either the, the for his supporters the reason you know that they're so supportive is that they like him and they're not willing to listen to other points of view, and then there are lots of people who don't like him, and that might color their judgment about is it a good idea for someone who works for you to be undermining you. And so let's just imagine we're not talking about Trump and we have, we're looking at future presidencies. I don't think that uh, you actively want to encourage um, seditious uh, behavior uh, in the workplace. Um, you don't want people to, uh, when you're the boss, uh, to be doing things uh, against your will and, or against your wishes and, and not telling you about it as well. 
um, what you want to foster is, is a place where people understand uh, decision-making authority and who's in charge of what, but also it's hopefully uh, you've hired the right kind of people so that if they have problems or issues with what you're saying, that they can come to you and talk to you about them and there's you know, not fear you know, terrible repercussions for that. And uh, so the, the good news, I guess, in this story is it's reassuring to people that there are what we suspected, probably people in the White House, more likely permanent staff than hired by Trump staff, um, who, who, protect, who are trying to protect the institution of the presidency. The, the bad thing about this is, again, going back to this point about anonymity, that they're, they're saying they're there and they're, they wish to remain anonymous. And uh, while that may be reassuring at some level politically for some people who don't like Trump, that you know, to know that there's someone out there protecting us, um, it's really bad form. If, if and I, I think a lot of people have said this this week, and I'm going to add my voice to them. If you really have an issue with what the president has done on a consistent basis, then the last thing you should do is write an anonymous op-ed piece. The first thing you should do is hold a press conference or contact people in Congress who are willing to hold hearings. Um, or, or do the press conference and just come forward and say, I'm, I'm offering my resignation, and as I do, I want to make these points and present the evidence. Invite the other people that you're, you're working with to do the same. And if it's a sizable number of people in the White House, that by itself and the courage that it takes, I think, to come out of the dark and, and speak in the light and, and pay the consequences, maybe losing your job, um, I think validates the message and the messenger. Uh, and I think that's the positive way to do this. I, I, I understand that they want to you know, remain anonymous, perhaps to preserve their job and to continue the behavior, but that doesn't change anything. And, it, and, and the worst part about this, Brian, as far as I'm concerned, um, is that this just feeds Mr. Trump's nonsense about false or fake news um, uh, because, uh, because it is an unnamed source mm -hmm. at this point. And, boy, I hope that the Times vetted this story carefully. Because if they get one part of it factually wrong, like maybe if this guy is not as high up in the administration as they portrayed him or her, um, you know that Trump will step on that and use it to browbeat um, everybody with and beat up potential Democratic uh, candidates in the, in the midterm elections as well. I mean, it's not, it's not a smart move in mm -hmm. many ways. Mm -hmm. um, just sticking with the office of the president for just a moment— uh, how might this op-ed impact governing for the president, given that, as far as we know, this person is still working in the, in, in, in the administration? Well, I, I, I think you've already seen the, uh, uh, some of the consequences of that. The, the, uh, there were more than 25. As of, by the time I went to bed last night, 27 people had written personal letters and delivered them themselves not through uh, media intermediaries, to the White House and to the president. Um, it was, do you remember when he first became president and he sort of uh, demanded loyalty oaths? And, right. And then we saw those weird meetings where he would go around the table before they got to the business, and, and each one of his cabinet people said, thank you for the honor of serving you. Yeah, I remember that. It, we sort of, and then that went away, and people said, that's silly. Well, we've kind of gone back to that. So one way that this has affected that in creating this paranoia for Trump that was already oversized to begin with, um, is it's reintroduced, I think, a governing style as far as he's concerned, where he feels entitled to make demands of loyalty and demonstrations of loyalty. And uh, that's not a great way to manage people. Um, uh, it's, a, it's a good way to intimidate people. But, you know, when you're the president, Brian, and this is especially important for a guy like Donald Trump who has no political experience prior to being the president here, um, you have to uh, govern, and you are the executive, but you still have to collaborate with others. You have to collaborate with people in the Congress, obviously enough, in the Senate and the House, but you also have to collaborate with other strong individuals in your own bureaucracy in the White House and in all the cabinet-level positions in different departments. If you only expect loyalty and dictate to everybody, they will eventually themselves undermine you by slowing down the process or putting up roadblocks in your way naturally, like all bureaucrats do. And uh, I, I think this is – so one way of answering your question, to make this shorter, I'm sorry, I'm long-winded, 
is that I think it has increased his paranoia and taken him back to his earlier tendencies, which was to demand loyalty, and uh, focused him sort of on that uh, instead of uh, addressing some of the problems. We still don't know where all those children who are separated at the borders from their parents are. Mm -hmm. We still have done nothing about the fact that all those people died in Puerto Rico. Uh, we still have no proof that North Korea has dismantled its nuclear weapons program. The president apparently is not speaking to the Secretary of State on this. And I could go on and on and on. There's a whole host of other things that are supposed to be on Trump's plate. And he's not talking about them now. He's off going to these, these uh, nice rallies where people who like him show up. And then, as he's done in the last 48 hours, all he does is he talks about this op-ed and how terrible it was. And uh, so I, I think that this is a major distraction for a guy who can't pay attention for more than 10 seconds anyway. And it is going to encourage his worst management instincts, I think. Uh, and that's bad. It's bad for us. You know, you, you sort of touched on it uh, earlier in a, in a previous answer, but we, we have an anonymous op-ed. Um, some people are referring to it as a soft coup, which to me sounds like an oxymoron. Uh, yeah. And, and tossing around, and they men mention in the piece invoking the 25th Amendment. How, how does that square with our democratic norms? Well, uh, uh, the fact you mean that, that some of these people talked about doing that? Well, the, I mean, the mere fact that people are talking about it, they're anonymous, so that there's this, like, shadow government that's unelected working with a government that is duly elected. That's what it sounds like to me when I hear invoking the 25th Amendment and, and uh, anonymous sources. Yeah, I, well, I, I wasn't clear in the op-ed piece myself whether... The, the writer in this was saying that he or she had initiated those discussions or whether they were noting right. that some of the other cabinet, I guess this person is a cabinet level person as well, so uh, this would perhaps include him or her. Um, so I'll, I'll retract what I just said. I, I, I think it's a real concern that they're talking about that. I mean, the 25th Amendment, the part that deals with removing the president because he's unable or she's unable to fulfill the, uh, uh, the responsibilities of the job. Um, has never happened. You know, we've done that with, uh, uh, we certainly, the, the other parts of the 25th Amendment, for example, that dealt with removing the vice president. I mean, this all came about, as you probably remember, because of Spiro Agnew mm -hmm. uh, needing to be removed. And after we'd had, you know, presidential assassinations and that sort of thing, you know, they, they started talking about, well, we should have a, a, we should be clear about the succession process. And that should extend as well to the vice president, because the vice president takes over the presidency in the event that something happens to the president. So what happens if something happens to the vice president before? And that's so the first three parts of the 25th Amendment are really about that. This fourth part is what we're talking about here, which is when the president is in some ways incapacitated or unable to fulfill the, the oath of office and the, the duties and responsibilities, then uh, subject to uh, congressional approval, and it's, I believe it's three-fourths in both the House and the Senate, um, you can vote to remove uh, with their approval without having another election or something like that. And that's an extraordinary thing. I don't think that we would get – you might get that if the Democrats retake the House, but I don't think you'd get that in the Senate today. Um, but the fact that we're even talking about it, frankly – uh, is is deeply concerning, and and it's something that that President Trump should take a little more seriously than just making jokes about impeachment, because it means his own people inside the White House, even though they decided not to go forward with this because they didn't want to stoke early on a constitutional crisis, had seen behavior that gave them enough pause to wonder whether it was really too risky to keep him in this job. And, and everyone I know who talks about this always starts with the topic of nuclear launch codes. And do you want someone who is this uninformed, intentionally or willfully ignorant, and sporadic and erratic in his behavior and judgment uh, to have you know, access to those, unfettered access uh, to those, to be able to do anything he wants that could you know, ignite a nuclear war? 
Um, it's, it's, it's very frightening, frankly, and something that Mr. Trump should treat a little more reverently and carefully when he talks about it. Uh, you mentioned constitutional crisis, and um, I'm, I'm going to ask you, um, could this lead to a constitutional crisis? But before I do, I'm going to give you my four definitions of a constitutional crisis because I always hear it tossed around and no one ever says what they're talking about. So for the benefit of listeners, I'm going to give you four possibilities for a constitutional crisis. Um, You can choose to disagree with these and give me your own, or you can answer based on whether or not we're headed toward a constitutional crisis. But here they are. All right. Number one. The Constitution does not address the matter. Number two, the Constitution offers different interpretations of the matter. Number three, the Constitution is clear, but it's not politically feasible. And number four, institutions have failed. Okay. So those are my four criteria for a constitutional crisis. And I'm wondering, does this op-ed move us closer in that direction? Well, uh, to the extent that, that uh, there was at least discussion or a hint about the 25th Amendment, yes, it, it, it gets us to one of those because um, uh, the 25th Amendment, the fourth part of it, clearly states what's the criteria for removing a president. Um, and, and, but as I said, the, the people who were discussing this uh, didn't want to create a crisis and also weren't sure that the votes would be there. So, uh, but, but to my mind, that they were even talking about it early on in his presidency um, means that the behavior that they were observing must have been really, really bad and very troubling. Um, I, I think that, that the other kind of crisis uh, that we have here um, as well uh really goes to, you know, a, a, a class about what is the extent of, of his executive power. And part of the problem, I think, in answering this particular point about how far can he go, Byron, is that his party, the Republican Party, or his party in name, I don't really think that Donald Trump is a Republican. He's a populist. And he's hijacked the Republican Party to get where he is. Um, but that party uh, has, for the most part, completely given up on trying to be equal players in this process. I mean, we have a separate part of government in the legislative branch because it's supposed to check and balance with the executive branch, and both of those are to be checked by the judiciary. Now, that only works if each of those groups is willing to assert their authority and and to, to speak loudly and forcefully from time to time. The judiciary does a reasonably good job of that, even, that, even though the White House, I think, and the, and the Congress try to influence who gets in there. Um, but this doesn't work in this system when you have the Republican Party controlling both houses of Congress. And even though privately they complain about what a nutcase they have in the, in the White House, they don't stand up to them. They have, uh, for the most part, abdicated their responsibility to be uh, independent of him and to, to assert for the, the 50 states that they represent. And so uh, we are in a, in a place right now because of that, that for the most part, the president gets away with everything. And uh, so back, back to this point about you know, could he be removed or whatever, well, uh, that fourth part of, of the 25th Amendment that would create this crisis, this constitutional crisis, the, that, the, the law is very clear. It requires a three-quarter vote in the House and in the Senate. And if we did that today, the votes would not be there in either House or Senate because the Republicans control both, and they're not inclined to check the authority of the president. They would dismiss the whole thing. Um, and uh, so I, this is a long-winded answer, but I think in some ways we're already in that crisis. And, and it is the, one of the four that you mentioned where the law is really clear, um, but the players involved aren't following their roles, mm-hmm. at least in the Congress. Mm-hmm. Um, any thoughts uh, before we move on? Any, any thoughts about the New York Times' role in facilitating the publication of this op-ed? Yeah, I, I you know, I, including you, I have a lot of people in my life who work in in reporting and journalism. And I've talked to them this past week, and. Uh, I, you know, most people believe that this was a story you had to publish. 
they don't they don't uh, quibble with the content, even though the content itself is probably, as I said to you before, not telling most people who've been following the story of Trump for the last two years, not telling anybody anything that we didn't already know or could see with our own eyes or hear with our own ears, in spite of his efforts to tell us, you know, it's fake news. Um, I, I'm bothered a little bit by publishing uh, with anonymity, uh, and and for these two reasons. First, I, it, it concerns me because it creates a precedent mm-hmm. um, uh, for someone to make up a story, and because they're a credible source, but you're not going to name it, they could, you know, uh, uh, perpetrate a complete lie, and. Uh, you know, if the people, if, and I don't think anybody at the New York Times is stupid. I'm sure they're very careful about this, but it just, it creates that possibility. And as I said, they've taken an awful risk with this because they're counting on all the facts that are mentioned in that story being true. If any are proven not to be true, um, then they've helped to perpetrate falsehoods. And, and that's the sort of thing that encourages the tendencies of this president to want to restrict free press and free speech. So that's that's one thing. And the other thing for me is um, there is something about publishing uh, anonymity, you know, the anonymous source, um, that also feeds into the president's narrative about fake news, which has been very destabilizing. And for those of us who work in news media, um, has is part of the reason that a lot of people don't trust the news as much as they used to. So I... I I really wish the Times had pushed back and said, this is a good story, but you should, you should come forward. Mm-hmm. You should say this. And, of course, that would require that person to make a huge sacrifice, and, and, and I don't know if they had that discussion with him or her or not. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with political analyst and my good friend from California, Joe Tooman, who has been gracious enough to join us on the, for the new season of The Public Morality. Uh, Joe... Given your previous answer, what then is the impact or potential impact of Bob Woodward's uh, forthcoming book, Fear, that'll be out um, September the 11th? Well, I, I think that, that, well, a couple of things. I would be willing to bet good money that the source for this op-ed, the writer for this op-ed, is someone who talked to Bob Woodward extensively. Um, and uh, so... One way of, of, of answering your question is um, here is a, a real news example of something that supplements and echoes as well stuff you're going to find in Woodward's book. Um, the, the major thrust of that book for which is describing the, the depth to which so many of, of Mr. Trump's uh, uh, workers, assistants, and the like from grunt-level workers all the way up to cabinet-level secretaries um, have realized that they have to manage him in some ways to keep him from hurting us or keep him from hurting himself or the presidency. And that's the central theme of the Woodward book. I think this op-ed piece uh, rather poignantly and and, uh, very clearly echoes that. Um, What does it mean for the book? Well, the book is almost... I mean, I'm going to read it when it comes out, but I, I think in many ways... Um, uh, this is one of those things that, that gives you the juicy details before you've had a chance to read the longer work. And I don't know if people will be as interested in buying the book after they've read this or not. I'm not sure. Well, you know, we've had, and um, I'm not to downgrade uh, Mr. Woodward's effort because he, after all, he's Bob Woodward, but we've had previews of this book, and I'm thinking um, Fire and Fury by Michael Wolff, and yeah. then uh, Omarosa Newman's book, Unhinged. So beyond beyond it being Bob Woodward and lending a, a certain air of credibility that goes back to the early 70s, uh-huh. what are we really learning here? Um, not, much, not much is different. I mean, the, 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 the part that's different um, is not about content of the story. It's about the method of delivery for the messenger. Um, Woodward's book quotes people, but Woodward also names names, you know, and he's got evidence, you know, in, in, in the tape recordings and the rest of it. I mean, he takes meticulous notes. Um, 
he is as much a journalist in some ways as like a, a historical archivist. I mean, he, he has all that stuff so that when somebody says that didn't happen or I didn't do that or Mr. Cohn never grabbed that page off my desk, Trump said that, he's got a copy of the page in his book, a photograph of it, uh, reportedly. I've seen that on the news. Mm -hmm. And uh, whereas in, in, you know, if we go back to the Times piece, what we have, uh, by contrast, is the person's own voice, you know, that might have been a source for Woodward speaking to us kind of almost in real time. And if this person writes another piece, he'll be or she'll be interacting with us, you know, engaging in a public discourse that is still mostly anonymous. And, uh, I, you know, I, it's interesting to consider whether that would encourage other people to engage in this way. I mean, this is maybe doing this, this op-ed piece is just another form of behavior like people who leak information to reporters all the time so that they know here's the other side of the story. Um, and don't attribute it to me. Um, but it's very rare that somebody does something like that and actually writes the piece and then asks you to publish what they wrote. Just don't name them. Usually what they do is they give you the information and you put it into your story and you say a person who asked for anonymity or is not qualified or is not supposed to speak on record for this uh, gave me this information. And here we have this person sort of, I mean, what he's done, what, this, what this, we'll call him anonymous. What anonymous has done is anonymous has made anonymous part of the story instead of being the messenger of the vessel and that's different that's right. very different that's really different from Woodward's book too I you've touched on this earlier as well but should Congress have any response beyond a verbal reaction to the fact that you know Bob Woodward and his documented uh, reports that staff members are removing documents from the president's desk for fear that he might actually take action I mean, is that not begging for some resp some response uh, from the legislative branch? Um, I, I want to make sure I understand you. You said Woodward is arguing. I mean, I mean, Bob Woodward put out that staff that the staff people um, are removing documents from the president's desk for fear that he might take action on those documents. Yeah. Now. Should should the legislative branch not be concerned that this is like the the modus operandi in the Oval Office? Well, I, I think there is some concern, but given the fact that, that Congress is primarily controlled by the Republicans now, most of that concern will be probably in the realm of does this undermine the ability of the president to do his job, and is this you know sort of politically motivated? Um, I. I I think that, that, by and large, Congress tries to steer clear, historically, of telling uh, the, the staff of a president, the staff of the executive, how they're supposed to operate. Um, and I'm pretty sure that there are already laws that were promulgated in Congress that make crimes of stealing official documents or something, things like that. Um, uh, and so, for example, if Mr. Cohen did point it back, remove that paper, and Trump forgot about it because he's got a 10-second attention span. Um, that, I mean, if it was an official document, I don't know that it was, but if it was, that might have constituted some form of theft under a federal statute, I'm sure, because you're not supposed to take those documents, especially if they're only intended for the president. Um, so I, I think the response from Congress might be, we already have rules for that, and otherwise we'll leave it to the executive branch to monitor what they do. We have enough problems <laughs> with our own staff. <laughs> Not, so I, I don't know that they'd want to get involved with it. I think they're actually hoping, at least the Republicans, that this thing will just blow over so they can have midterms and hopefully not take too many losses. Because I don't think this helps the Republican Party at all, the story. Mm -hmm. And what do we have? 200, we had 200,000 jobs this month, uh, uh, the August, August report, 200,000 jobs, which normally that's good news for an administration, and it's um, third, third or fourth bullet point now. Yeah. Well, it, it, uh, it's been pushed to the back because uh, uh, in the news coverage, how could you not cover stories like this? I mean, in, in, as much as I was being critical of the Times as well, I mean, how do you ignore something like this? You have to talk about it. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think, especially for those of us who either interact like me or work in news media like you've done, um, you know a story when you see it. 
just like you, you know, you've got a book coming out and you knew what a great topic for your book it was the moment you saw it. You just, you have, you have that, uh, that sense and, and it's no different in the news business. So, uh, uh, naturally we're going to gravitate to this sort of thing. And it does mean that other things get pushed back. And the president is not completely wrong when he says he doesn't, there's not, there's not equal, equivalent coverage of the things that are happening that work. But if I may critique him for a moment, you know, we, there are more people working than have been for a long time. We may be at static employment, you know, where you expect a couple of percent points of unemployment, but that may be people between jobs or people who just chosen not to work anymore. And otherwise, you have full employment or, or pretty close to it. But one of the things that the president promised with the stimulus that created this new employment, right, was that tax cut. And he promised not just jobs, but he promised wages would rise. And the data shows that that's happened in a couple of places, but it has not happened systemically across all industries and all forms of jobs. So lots of people are working, but they're not necessarily getting ahead or even get, getting back to equal necessarily. And that's a story we ought to be covering. It certainly will be an election issue, especially in those battleground states in the Midwest that are still waiting for manufacturing jobs to come back or whatever. And the question is, uh, or, or for farmers in agriculture, now that he has this crazy policy about trade, um, you know, they, they don't want uh, aid from Washington. They want jobs. They want, uh, they want to make money selling soybeans to China or whatever it is. And uh, that's their way of getting better wages as well. And in this environment, the stuff that he wishes there was more coverage of, um, he's probably right about, but he should be careful what he wishes for. Because if we really investigated that, you'd find that a lot of those people are not happy with his trade policies right now. Well, I think it's fair to say there is no economic aid that the federal government could provide that offsets losing China as your number one soybean market. I, th- I think, yeah, I think, for sure. For sure. Now, now that I've got your head just totally spun in different directions, trying to parse out this information, let us now turn our attention to, uh, the Brett Kavanaugh hearings. Uh, okay. Okay. And, um, Again, this is what began this unprecedented week with the Supreme Court hearings for Brett Kavanaugh. Uh, but I'm 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 curious, Joe, in in your analysis and your in in your experience, should we just look at uh, su- uh, Supreme Court hearings in the Senate as delineated between pre-Robert Bork and post-Robert Bork, and what and what we have now is the latter. Yeah, I, I, I think that's, and I'm glad you mentioned Bork because, uh, although I don't know he would want to be remembered this way, but this is without question, um, it, his his example is in many ways responsible for what we see today. Uh, the abortion has been for almost 40 years the most contentious political issue in this country, and uh, fought tooth and nail. Um, uh, and, and it is certainly prominent when we have these, any kind of judicial confirmation hearings, um, because uh, depending upon who controls Congress at the time and therefore controls those committees um, uh, that do the investigation of judicial nominees, um, how you see abortion very much you know, dictates a lot of the way that you approach a potential nominee or candidate for a judgeship or, or the Supreme Court. And for our listeners, Robert Bork's contribution to this, if you like, uh, to think of it that way, was that unlike others, when he was asked about these questions, rather than give the answers that everybody gives today, which, which is basically a variation on this, I can't comment on uh, facts of a case that I have not, that I may hear later and that I have not been exposed to yet. I can't prejudge a case, basically, what they're saying. Rather than do that, Bork said exactly what he thought. I mean, he was completely blunt and honest. And, and Bork, by the way, uh, we read his stuff when I was in law school back in the early 1980s. He's, I mean, I, know, I didn't like his politics, but he wasn't stupid. He was quite smart, and he didn't suffer fools. And I think he thought that probably about these senators he was dealing with at the time. So he said, and he defended his positions. And uh, he got tossed right out of it. I mean, he didn't get confirmed. And the message to every other nominee was real clear after that, which is 
you don't answer direct questions that way. You, you follow that example that we see today, which is to avoid taking positions, you know, use, use that kind of technique and otherwise you know, try and get helpful answers but be very careful about giving away too much information. And it's meant, unfortunately, Brian, that since that time, since Bork's time, that we have nominated some really good people to the court, but very often we don't really know very much about the people we're putting there. And we're trusting the fact that because they have life tenure, that maybe even if we put someone on there who you know, is not the best person in terms of our politics, that because they have life tenure, hopefully they'll soften and evolve in their positions. And there are plenty of historical examples of people who've done just that on the court. Um, Hugo Black mm-hmm. was a member of the court in the 19... Uh, That's a great example. <laughs> and he, Black was a member of the Ku Klux Klan when he was a young man. Um, and later became a champion of civil rights uh, when he was on the court. Uh, and there, there are lots of examples like that uh, of people that, that sort of evolved differently. Anthony Kennedy is one of those, too. I don't think anybody, when he went on, expected that he would be this basic centrist, the swing vote, sometimes with and sometimes against the conservative bloc of the party, and so on. I mean, there are people like that. So we unfortunately put people on without knowing enough about them because they intentionally, because of this process, give very vague answers. Um, we don't always know what we're getting. And, uh, you know, there are some people like Clarence Thomas, don't mean to be disrespectful to him, but I read a lot of his opinions, or those that he's written, he hasn't written that many, but lots of concurring. And, you know, he's not, he's not that impressive, honestly. Um, so questions about sexual misconduct or whatever aside, the, the allegations that were made by Anita Hill, which never in the end were resolved. Um, he's kind of, uh, he's not the strongest jurist they've had there. That's, maybe that's the kindest way I'll say it. And that was sort of never discovered in the hearings because I think you know, we were focusing on other things at the time, but you know, was he, is he really the most competent candidate that we had? And, and I think you can make the argument he wasn't. Um, meaning that there could have been other reasons to sort of say, let's find a different candidate. And, and there are other examples like Thomas that I think I could give you that are unfortunately on the court um, because these investigations, as robust as they seem, don't really tell us very much about these candidates. Um, so I, I think that's where we are now. My, my, my next question to you almost feels moot because I was going to ask you, if we if we move beyond the cacophony of the hearings, did we learn anything about Brett Kavanaugh? And I think you kind of answered that, but go ahead. <laughs> well, I, I'll tell you, I, I thought that uh, there were a couple of moments uh, in the last several days when, uh, he, for me, he didn't impress me. Um, one of them, uh, frankly, was... Uh, when he had that back-and-forth exchange with uh, Senator Harris from California. Uh, that would be so your like, Senator Kamala Harris. Go right ahead, Joe. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, uh, who, who uh, uh, you know, asked him very directly whether he had been to this law firm that was founded by the personal attorney of the, of the president to discuss Robert Miller's investigation. And each time, you know, usually when he answered any question this week, he, 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 he never said yes or no. He would always start with these long-winded answers. He paused before he answered that and looked funny. I mean, he had a funny expression on his face, like he was looking at it, like, what do you have? And what do you have on me? And instead of answering the question, he started asking for more information. And she said, the question's clear, yes or no. And then she added this rejoinder, be careful and think before you answer, which is a warning, like, I've got something. Now... She said last night on Rachel Maddow's show that she did have a source, but the source, here we are back to anonymous again, requested anonymity um, for fear of reprisal, uh, um, but that he had been there. And uh, so she asked him a series of those questions. And, I, and I, you know, even though in the end, after two days, he finally said, no, I didn't have a conversation like that. He didn't deny that he had been there. And... The fact that he was evasive about that stuff to me was troubling. I don't think it's troubling enough for most Americans, but maybe it had an impact, I don't know, on one of the two female senators in the Republican Party that are in play. Um, that, that's one thing. I was also surprised, frankly, 
that uh, when Lindsey Graham, Senator Graham, uh, gave uh, Mr. The, 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 the nominee, pardon me, um, a, an opportunity to correct the impression that that photograph of him refusing to shake uh, the hands of that father of, of, a, of a dead girl from Parkland, the shooting there, mm -hmm. um, that when Graham gave him a chance to say, you know, people read something in the bat, you didn't talk to him, is there something you'd like to say to him or say about him now? And, you know, for the umpteenth time, Kavanaugh launched into reminding everybody that he served the homeless at, at food at his at a shelter at his church back home, meaning I'm a good guy. But he never referenced this man, his name, I think, was Gutenberg, and uh, Fred Gutenberg, and uh, he ignored him in, verbally, and he was given multiple chances to do this. And that perplexed me, because it would have been the easiest way to, to lessen the impact of that. And frankly, his inability to address this, for me, reflected, uh, I think, uh, on what's really a lack of, of the ability to empathize. And for a guy that talks so lovingly about his own children, especially his own daughters, that he couldn't empathize with a father who's grieving with the death of his daughter was troublesome on a personal level. And that has nothing to do with are you qualified to be a justice or not. He's qualified up the kazoo, absolutely. But, you know, we have these hearings, not just for theater, also because we want to get a sense of the kind of human being we're dealing with. And I don't think he showed himself well there. Um, and that coupled with the fact that he was – as everybody else is, Democrats too, when they have their candidates, so evasive in answering all the questions. It didn't impress me, to tell you the truth. I didn't walk away going, wow, that's the guy I want on the court, even if he's a conservative. It left me feeling like he shows no empathy for someone else. He can't understand someone else's suffering. He can't comment on it. Um, even though he speaks so glowingly about his own daughters, he can't relate to somebody whose daughter was killed by a weapon that this judge thinks it's okay for people to, to own legally, right? That's, that's a problem. Have the hearings been whittled down to a war of attrition, hoping that the nominee might say something controversial to give, give people reason not to vote, which sort of goes back to my original question to you about Bork, or, or am I being too cynical? And please, you can just chastise me for being too cynical if you, if you think so. No, I, I don't think you're being too cynical at all. I, I, yes, that, I just, and, and as I said, when it's a Democratic president, of course, Mr. Obama didn't get that chance at the end there, but... Uh, <laughs> Um, but when it's the Democrats putting somebody up, you know, we do the same thing. And the Republicans then are the ones who are trying to trap you with your past statements and the like. Um, one of the things that I thought was that needs correcting in this process uh, is that clearly it will always be one party or the other that's in control of the Senate when these hearings come, come about. And there has to be more fairness and the production and the, and the timeliness of the production of documents so that anybody who's asking questions is not getting, you know, 10,000 or 50,000 pages of things to look at 12 hours before they're supposed to be answer, asking questions. That's just wrong. That's bad form. And uh, that needs to change. The, the other thing that I'm really tired of, and I'm very supportive of, of some Democrats, believe me, um, I, I, I thought it was I thought what Kamala Harris did was fair. Um, and by the way, she showed her, her legal chops there. She was, she was not intimidated by a guy who might be on the Supreme Court. I think he was intimidated by her. She was quite good, quite good. I was, I was a little put off by court, Senator Booker's, Cory Booker's mm -hmm. uh, performance. Um, you mean Spartacus? Spartacus. <laughs> a guy Spartacus moment. And insisting that, you know, go ahead, bring it, throw me out. I mean, it was nakedly a pitch for attention uh, because he's thinking about running for president. And if there was ever anybody who didn't look like he was ready to run for president yet, it was Booker. He was, he was, he was pressing a little too hard, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Kamala was scary. If you're a candidate, you'd be, I mean, a nominee, you'd be scared of her. But what she did seemed purposeful, methodical, and not for the purpose necessarily of drawing attention to herself because she might want to run for president, just because she was doing her job, busting this guy if he needed busting. And there was a real difference there. And frankly, and I need no disrespect to Booker, I think he's a good man, this kind of reminded me at that point in these hearings of watching the House of Representatives 
when they were having that investigation about the Mueller investigation, and, and Devin Nunes was running things, and you had people saying completely crazy things, and it seemed like uh, uh, you know a, 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 a circus more than a house. And people, I think, after watching Nunes in that hearing, if you remember the one I'm talking about yes. a few months ago, walked away feeling kind of disgusted by that. And everybody said, in the Senate, they do it right. Everybody's collegial. Well, it didn't seem that way yesterday. Yesterday, that hearing looked a little more like the circus that you find in the House. And I think all of our politicians, Republicans, Democrats, independents, really need to return to being collegial. I mean, the whole reason we give them longer terms in office um, is we want them to build relationships with each other across the aisle as well, bipartisan, so that we can produce legislation that will be palatable to most people. When they get tribalized this way and start mimicking the nonsense you see in the House, then they're no better, frankly, and they don't deserve longer terms. Well, well, when I you know, in the part of your answer, I, I recall back to what George Washington reportedly said to Thomas Jefferson, that the Senate was created to cool the House of Legislation just as That's a saucer right. is used to cool hot tea. That's right. Joe Tooman. <laughs> My friend, thank you for joining me once again and providing sage analysis as always on, on, on the public morality. The public morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N at publicmorality.org. Our archive broadcasts are located at our website, which is publicmorality.com. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast which can be found on iTunes. My weekly column can be found in the Sunday edition of the Winston-Salem Journal, as well as Politics NC. That's Politics, North Carolina. The Public Rally is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Public Rally, I'm Byron Williams.